Before the New Testament was written, God made this promise through the prophet Isaiah. I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. As we've made our way through the book of Revelation, we've seen how the present heavens and earth are full of weeping and crying. We've seen God's people pictured in this book as a holy city, but a city that is being trampled in this world. We've seen Satan waging war on God's people. We've seen his representative, the beast, appearing to conquer God's people. Revelation has shown us this heaven and earth is not always a place of rejoicing. For many of God's people, it seems mainly to be a place of weeping. But God made his promise. A new heaven and earth. God sent his son to purchase a people for his new heaven and earth. And now finally in the book of Revelation, we are given a vision of God's people with him in their new home. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 21. And we're going to begin looking at the new creation. If you have a church Bible, it's page 1249. And in the large print, 1937. There will be more for us to see next week, but for now we're going to look at chapter 21, verses 1 to 8. In previous weeks... We've seen the last battle, which was over just about as soon as it started. The result of that battle was total defeat for God's enemies. Then last week we saw Judgment Day, as all humanity appeared before God on his throne. We were told those whose names were not written in the Lamb's Book of Life will be thrown into the lake of fire. But now we're going to see the future for those left standing when Judgment Day is over. Those whose names are in the book of life. John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. 
for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this. And I will be their God and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. This is God's word. This passage contains, first of all, John's description of what he saw, the vision in verses 1 to 5. Then in verses 6 to 8, the challenge that accompanies the vision, that challenge is spoken by the Almighty on his throne. So first, the vision. Everything made new. Remember, we're now being shown what comes after Judgment Day. And in verse 5, God says, I am making everything new. Verses 1 to 4 describe four aspects of that new creation. And what we're going to see is, this new creation will not be utterly unknown to us. It will not be a completely foreign experience to us. It will be the creation we know renewed, transformed, and made perfect. One writer says the new creation will be new in the sense that it has a new quality. Not in the sense that it's a completely new thing. So the future God has for us will certainly surprise us. It will be full of the kind of surprises that delight us. The kind where we say, oh, I never expected. Or, I never realized. We will be surprised by the perfection of God's new creation. There will be endless joyful discoveries. But the future God has for us will not be an utterly unimaginable future. The Apostle Paul says it will be creation liberated from its frustration and its bondage to decay. It will be creation brought into freedom and glory. That's exactly the picture John is shown in this vision. In verse 1, he sees a new home. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And there was no longer any sea. Last week we saw the word heaven can be used several ways in the Bible. It can refer to the place where God is today. Or it can simply refer to the sky above. When the word is used in that second way, then heaven and earth is a way of talking about the whole creation. 
And that's the meaning here. John sees a new created world. He mentions that the first heaven and earth had passed away. That was explained in the passage we looked at last week. We were told that on judgment day, the earth and the heavens will flee from God's presence. Face to face with his perfect holiness, this unholy creation will dissolve. Yes, in the beginning, this creation was good. It still is good because God made it. But today, it's infested with the same sin that clings to humanity. And sin cannot live in God's presence. So here in verse 1, John gives us a little reminder. We've seen this present creation pass away. When judgment day is over, there will be no going back to this. It's gone. But for God's people, there will be something greater. A better home than this one. And it's very important to see the biblical picture of our future home is not the one we find in cartoons and in films where people are floating around on clouds with a Celtic harp being strummed in the background. That is not the biblical picture. According to the Bible, we are destined for a new earth not for fluffy clouds. Verse 1 also says there was no longer any sea. What are we to make of that? Does that mean there will be no swimming or scuba diving in the new heaven and earth? Because there are no large bodies of water there. Is that what it means? Well, remember, this is a book of visions. John is shown pictures that represent reality. So, for example, in chapter 1, you remember he saw lampstands that represented the church. In chapter 5, he saw a slain lamb that represented Christ crucified. He has seen God's people with a mark on their foreheads and the beast's people with a different mark on their foreheads. But in reality, of course, none of us have visible marks on our foreheads. But the point being made in those visions was we do all belong to somebody. We all serve somebody. We all give our allegiance to somebody. So when John tells us this vision of our future home has no sea in it, we have to ask, what has the sea represented earlier in Revelation? What did it represent in the visions of this present world? <clears throat> and the answer is, in those visions, the sea was the source of chaos and rebellion and evil. Back in chapter 13, John saw the dragon, Satan, standing on the shore of the sea. And out of the sea came the beast, evil incarnate. When John saw visions of this creation, the sea was the place evil came from. 
And so we have to understand this reference to the sea in line with how it's been used before in the book. When we do that, we realize John is not talking about the thing we go swimming in. He's telling us that in God's new creation, there will be no more evil. There'll be no way for the enemy to get into this new home. If the sea in those earlier visions was like a portal for evil, that portal will be gone from the new heaven and earth. So, will there be swimming and scuba diving in the new creation? Or at least, will there be a place where those things could be done if you had the inclination to do them? Will there be an equivalent to the Mediterranean or the Caribbean Sea? The Bible just doesn't tell us. But what we can say is this. We know the new creation will be a perfected creation. It's not going to be this creation minus. It's going to be this creation plus. So is it likely to be missing any of the things that make this creation so majestic and so awe-inspiring? I don't think so. We don't need to worry that what God has in store is somehow going to be less than this. We don't need to worry that the truly good things in this creation are going to be gone from the new creation. I think we can safely say that much without going further and being dogmatic about the details of what will be there and what won't. The new creation will mean a new home for God's people. And it will mean a new holiness for God's people. Verse 2, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. We've seen before in this book, the people of God are described in several different ways. As lampstands, we mentioned that already, as a temple, as a city, All those pictures show us a different truth about the same thing, the same people of God. In earlier chapters, God's people were also pictured as a woman in the wilderness. In the wilderness where she was being taken care of by God, even as the dragon pursued her there, that's how she is today. But in chapter 19, we were given a hint of how she's going to be in the future. She was announced in chapter 19 as a bride arriving for her wedding day. And now finally in our passage, the bride who has been announced makes her entrance. Here she's also pictured as the New Jerusalem, also called the New Jerusalem. That picture is going to be developed in the passage we'll look at next week. But here the focus is on the picture of a bride, beautifully dressed or made beautiful for her husband. The original word behind this is where we get our English word cosmetic. That's helpful for us 
so long as we don't start thinking this is just a surface beauty. She has truly been made beautiful. It's not just skin deep. And it's important to realize this is the goal that took Jesus to the cross. In Ephesians 5, Paul tells us this. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Very often today, the church doesn't look that great. Today, the church has plenty of stains and wrinkles. But here, we are seeing her as she will be. The woman who today is wandering in the wilderness will eventually make it to her wedding banquet. And she will be made as beautiful as the occasion requires. Perfectly beautiful. And in this picture, beauty means holiness. God's people will be made fit to take their place in God's sinless new creation. We noticed a few moments ago our new home will be perfect. It will have a new quality. But it will not be utterly unknown to us. And here too, this future holiness will not be a holiness that is utterly unknown to us. If we truly belong to Christ, then our future holiness will be the perfection of what we've already begun to know in this life. Paul wrote to Christians in Corinth, you were sanctified in Christ Jesus. Sanctified means made holy. When we come to Christ in repentance, when we trust him for salvation, then he accepts us as we are. But he does not leave us as we are. He brings about a genuine change in us. And he sets us on a path that leads finally to this. The spotless bride on her wedding day. None of us are there yet. But if we are truly part of the bride of Christ, then we're not where we used to be either. Holiness is not an utterly foreign concept for us. Every time that we take a small, tottering step forward in holiness, every time one of our many wrinkles fades away a little bit, we are growing towards the stunning beauty we're destined for. And our beauty on that day will glorify the one who came from heaven and sought us to be his holy bride. The new creation means a new home, new holiness, and a new experience of God. Verse 3, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, 
Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. As great as it is to think of our future home and future holiness, now we're at the heart of the matter. This is the essence of the new creation. Above all else, this is what's most desirable about the new creation. This is what God has been working towards ever since Eden. Ever since the first man and woman were expelled from his presence. It's all been building towards this. When Israel left Egypt... God's presence descended onto Mount Sinai. But the Israelites couldn't go up that mountain. They couldn't even set foot on the mountain. Only Moses could go up and meet with God. Later in the tabernacle tent and then the temple, God was present in the inner room, the Holy of Holies. But only the high priest could go in. And only once a year. Why? Because unholy people couldn't survive the unveiled presence of God. Later on, for a short time, God the Son came and lived on this earth. And his glory was veiled in those few years. One day, at what we call the Transfiguration, three of the disciples briefly got to see his glory. But that was a one-off experience for them. Then when Jesus died, that big curtain in the temple was torn in two, showing that God had left the building. Now the New Testament tells us we are God's temple. His spirit lives in us. That's an amazing reality. But even that, we are told, is only a deposit. It's only a down payment of what's to come for us. We can truly experience God's presence today. He is not unknown to us. But then we will know him fully. He isn't going to change, but our experience of him will change. And we will be captivated. There's an old hymn that says, The bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my king of grace. Whatever other glories the new creation will have, it is God himself who will capture our attention. And amazingly, we will capture his. Verse 4 says, he will wipe away every tear. What a way to picture God delivering his comfort. The Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, reaching out and wiping your cheek. He's always the one who heals our wounds and our heartache. 
Today, he often brings comfort through his word or through Christian brothers and sisters. But this will be perfect comfort and it will be personally delivered. And because we will be perfected people in a perfect home in the unveiled presence of God, we will have a new experience of life. Again in verse 4, there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Death, mourning, crying and pain will disappear with this first creation. Today they are a normal part of life. They're part of the order of things today. One by one, those around us die. And our own lives are essentially a long and drawn out death. That's how it's been since the Garden of Eden. But it's not, not how things were created to be. The New Testament says death is not normal from God's perspective. Death is an enemy. And one day it will be swallowed up forever. So will the mourning and pain that come with death. Today you and I live under the shadow of death. It's always there. Sometimes it's in the background. Sometimes it's in the foreground. But one day death will be dead. We will know what it's like to live without the shadow of death. That's God's promise. We've been given a glimpse here of God's new creation. Later in chapter 21 and into chapter 22, we'll learn more of what's in store for God's people. But at the beginning of verse 6, God assures John What he's seen is not just a potential reality. It may be in the future, but from God's perspective, it is reality. It will happen. And so God says, it is done. How can he say that already? Because he is the Alpha and the Omega. He rules over the beginning and the end and everything in between. He will make sure this new creation becomes reality. Then, having underlined the certainty of what John has seen, God gives the challenge. New creation begins now. The new creation is not like a bus. It's not something we're to stand around waiting for. We're to move towards it. How do we do that? Well, God explains. In the middle of verse 6, he gives the first step. We're to receive it as a gift. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. The Bible uses water of life or living water as a way of talking about eternal life. 
We find it in the Old Testament and Jesus used it in his preaching. Drinking the water of life means entering into eternal fellowship with God. Fellowship that begins now in this life and comes to perfection beyond this life. So who can have this life? Who can drink the water? Those who are thirsty. Those who recognize their great need. Those who know they're dead without it. All you need for this water is thirst. God says he gives it without cost, meaning free of charge. It didn't come without cost to God. He paid a high price to buy life for us on the cross. But he holds it out to us as a gift. So we begin our new creation life when we come admitting our need and trusting in the one who bought us life. You can do that today. If you're thirsty for new creation life, come and receive it. I would love to talk with you about it afterwards. Listen to this promise for those who come to Christ. Again, this is Paul writing to the church in Corinth. If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. Does that mean you've already arrived? No. But it means you already have the new life in you. You have the green shoots that will grow And eventually that will blossom fully in the new heaven and earth. And so we're not to cling to the ways of the old creation that's passing away. Instead, we're to leave old creation ways behind. Look at verse 7. Those who are victorious will inherit all this. In other words, all the new things we've seen in the previous verses. And I will be their God and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. The cowardly here are those who refuse to suffer inconvenience for the Lamb. If allegiance to Jesus is going to result in ridicule or worse, they will deny their allegiance to Jesus. The rest of this list is pretty self-explanatory. It includes the most spectacular sins and what we might think are the most mundane sins. Everything from murder and sexual immorality to lies and unbelief and everything in between. In other words, this is a representative list. It's not an exhaustive list. You can fill it out from the rest of the New Testament. 
And verse 8 is very blunt. Those who live lives characterized by sin will be consigned to the lake of fire. Literally, their part or their portion is in the lake of fire. That will be their inheritance. It's important we remember the order of verses 6, 7, and 8. Verse 6 comes first. It reminds us we can't earn our way to a pass mark on Judgment Day. We saw that last week. It's impossible. No one will enter the new heaven and earth because of their deeds. They will enter because their names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Because they came to him for the free water of eternal life. That is the message of verse 6. And then come verses 7 and 8. Telling us those who have received that water, those who have new life in them, they will live lives that are increasingly unlike this old world and increasingly like the new world. Another way to put it is to say our lives will show where we belong. Our lives will show where we're going. Verse 7 says, if that future world truly is our inheritance, then we will persevere in the face of temptation and hardship. In the context of Revelation, that's what it means to be victorious. That's what it means to conquer and overcome. It does not mean we live like kings and queens in this life. It doesn't mean our lives look victorious by this world's standards. It means we press on towards the new world. Turning our backs on the sin that has no place in that new world. The New Testament calls it putting aside the deeds of darkness. Putting to death whatever belongs to our earthly nature. Throwing off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Making every effort to be found spotless and blameless. Purifying ourselves just as Christ is pure. This is a very, very big deal in the New Testament. And it's a very big deal for this reason. If our lives are characterized by the things that characterize this world, then in the future we will go the way of this world. If we cling to old creation ways, we will be destroyed along with this old creation. That is what the text says. And so the challenge for all of us is this. If we have received new creation life as a gift, then let's make it the business of our lives to leave old creation ways behind. Those ways are like clothes that don't fit us. We need to take them off. One day, unholiness and sin will be gone. If we love it so much, we can't bear to let go of it now, 
What does that say about where we're headed to? What does it say about the destination we're journeying towards? Because there are two set out for us in verses 7 and 8. It's true, perfect holiness will not come for any of us until we're in our new home. Until then, there will be stains and there will be wrinkles on all of us. But we dare not get comfortable with those wrinkles. New creation begins now. If we have new creation life in us, we will be committed to growing in holiness. And a big part of that involves throwing off sin. From the spectacular sins all the way down to the ones that seem mundane and maybe even normal. The sinful words and attitudes and glances. Earlier we all sang to Jesus, lead me in ways to show forth your glory. Ways that will end in heaven above. He has promised that he will lead us. So let's commit ourselves to following him all the way to this new heaven and earth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this glimpse of what you have in store for us. It's wonderful. We pray that we will see just something of how wonderful it is. We pray that this vision of the future will be so attractive to us, so desirable to us that we find ourselves moving towards it today, straining towards it. That we find ourselves putting aside and throwing off the things that don't belong in this future. We want to be so eager to see you face to face that we're already turning from the things that make you hide your face. And as we struggle often through mourning and crying and pain, the things that come so regularly in this world, we look forward to the day when you personally will wipe away every one of those tears from our eyes. We long for it and we want to live in the light of it. So help us. Amen. Let's sing wonderful.